This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and I save a lot of money on my flights because all my baggage is emotional. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and once claimed a woodpecker called him paranoid in Morse code. Or Merry Christmas! This is our special Christmas episode. We talk about what Christmas is like in China. We'll talk about some of the Christmas words in Chinese, and we even have a name that tune for some of the Chinese Christmas carols. And it's all to bring you some Christmas cheer in Chinese. Now, this episode, our guest interview is with Mervin Cook, a writer. Poet, storyteller, Chinese speaker, and a generally fascinating individual from Northern Ireland. He shares with us his journey of life, death, sorrow, and happiness. This is a special interview for a special episode. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner. Hey, I'm John Pasden, and Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas to you, John. Hey, well, we got a great show lined up today. It's gonna fill you with Christmas cheer. But before we get into that, we have a couple reviews that we're going to read. All right, our first review it comes from LX Joseph from the United States, and LX Joseph says a vital and valuable resource for Chinese learners, old and new. Thank you, Jared and John. This podcast is a godsend for me. Arriving in my first year of studying Chinese. I learned best with a heavy dose of theory, something that's been lacking from my language classes. I've been longing for a resource that'll help me build a framework for my growing vocabulary, and lo, here it is. To be clear, this podcast isn't going to teach you Chinese, but it is going to teach you how to learn Chinese, or at least that's the idea. There's a thousand apps and books for cramming characters and phrases, but a distinct lack of ways to bring it all together. You can learn Chinese looks like a very promising and entertaining attempt to fill that gap. Thanks, Joseph. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. We're glad you're benefiting from it. Okay, so I have one other review from、uh, Amy the Orangutan via Apple Podcasts in the UK, and she says, "Amazing podcast for anyone who wants to or is learning Mandarin. I think this podcast is an essential first step for anyone who is thinking about or interested in learning Chinese. Even though it doesn't actually teach you Chinese, it will help you lay a good foundation, set a reasonable expectation." And will make your learning journey much more enjoyable and efficient. For people who are in the process of learning, it is full of excellent advice, tips, and tricks, and funny and interesting stories of people who have gone through the years of struggles and ups and downs to keep you motivated. I can't recommend this enough. Well, thanks a lot, Amy. Yeah, thanks, Amy. And I question for is Amy is she an orangutan or not? Are you targeting the the primate demographic, Jared? I don't know. I mean, we're casting a wide net here. Anyway, all right. So our show today is about Christmas. Everything about Christmas in China, and a little bit about Christmas in Chinese. And John, you've got something we're going to kick off here with, right? So I dug into the archives of my website Sinosplace. I have some、uh, Chinese Christmas songs. So they're Western songs, classics that we all know, and then they're actually sung in Chinese. I thought it would be fun to share some of those songs. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a little clip of three different songs. And try to figure out what it is. It's fun, and、uh, Jared's going to do it along with you. All right, so this is going to be like、uh, Jared reacts to Chinese Christmas carols. There you go. Okay, so time to listen to the first song. Here we go. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is jiving. Man, the Christmas spirit's coming real hard now. <laughs> oh, don't be afraid, little friends. Oh, 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 Santa Claus, he's coming to town. <laughs> Doesn't this song ever creep you out, though, John? I mean, because, you know, he's like watching you when you're sleeping and like, who does that? No, man, that's just Santa. That's part of the deal. Yeah, I guess it was as a booyah pa, so I guess, you know, I shouldn't be afraid. Wow, okay, Santa Claus is coming to town, guys. All right. All right, there we go. Okay, that, that was an excellent song. So Santa Claus is coming to town. Okay, and if you want this full song, um, we're going to have a link where you can download it uh, in the notes of the podcast. Okay, so next song. Are you ready, Jared? Oh, I'm ready. This one will be also really easy. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, here it comes. Oh, again. Oh, yeah. Ding, ding, dong. Ding, ding, dong. I'm going to guess this is Jingle Bells. Of course it's Jingle Bells. Ding, ding, dong. Ding, ding, dong. Ding, ding, dong, man. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I got to say, I remember this song because one time... My kids, they were at some, like, photo shoot, and this is years ago. Anyway, and it was in the middle of summer, and they played this song on repeat, only this song, on repeat for, like, a straight hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is one of those examples of, like, a a song with kind of useless vocabulary. If you really want to learn the word slay, well, then learn the words to this song. How do you say slay? Listen to the song, man. It's in there. I guess I'll have to listen more closely because I'm getting distracted by ding, ding, dong, ding, ding, dong. Oh, hua shui, hua shui. It's like slip, slippery snow thing. <laughs> nope. No? Nope. Of course, hua shui is also like chemistry. You got one character right, but that's not the word. Anyway. I know. I know. This is not a vocabulary lesson. You ready for the next song? Okay, let's do the next song, John. All right. What, what do we got next? This one could be the easiest one of all. All right. Here it comes. Where are you, Christmas? I know this is like 80s, like, digital keyboard going on. Ah! Wish you a Merry Christmas. This is not Wham. Okay. Actually, this one is beginner friendly. So listen to the lyrics. Oh, he's got some bongos. Yes! That's, that's super easy! So, woman, that's excellent. So, we wish you a Merry Christmas, like legit. The chorus, anyway, is easy. Gets a little harder after the chorus. Yeah, we won't worry about that. So. All right, I like it. And so where can we find these amazing Chinese Christmas carols, John? I have these songs available for download on sanosplice.com. We'll put a link in the podcast notes. And it's not just these three. I think there are 13 total songs, two versions of Jingle Bells, two versions of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and also some traditional Christian songs like Silent Night and The First Noel and Hark the Herald Angels Sing in Chinese. We need that. We definitely need that. 
Okay, so I figured since we just listened to these songs, let's just talk a little bit about the Christmas vocabulary because I think it's kind of cool. Like if you look at the English word for Christmas, it comes from Christ's Mass, which if you're Catholic, those are familiar words, but for most people, it doesn't connect directly to Christmas. We just know what Christmas means. Whereas the Chinese, the characters you use to make the word Christmas totally makes sense. They're logical and you can almost understand it if you just know the characters. That's right. So the first character is Sheng, S-H-E-N-G. Right, so that means holy. And the second character is Dan. And Dan kind of means like, you know, birthday or to be born also. It's not a character used for regular birthdays. It's kind of the birth of a very important person. So anyway, holy, important birth makes sense for Christmas. And that's, I think, a good example of the kind of thing you encounter a lot in Chinese. It's not the same as English. There are not so many loan words, which are super helpful. But if you learn the Chinese, it has its own logic to it. It doesn't give you a hard time in that sense. Yeah, and, I, and when you come up with different Christmas things, you can just pretty much throw Christmas in front of it. I mean, we do that in English, too. So like a Christmas present, Shengdan Li Wu. Christmas tree is just uh, Shengdan Shu, right? Yeah, you're right. And so you can pretty much put Shengdan in most of the things. But one of my favorites, though, is Santa Claus, right? Because Santa Claus, he's got his own name in English, but in Chinese? Yeah, in Chinese, they're like, we don't need that name. They're just Christmas old man. Shengdan <laughs> Lao <laughs> So that's pretty fun. I was I was wondering, why didn't they call him like Shengdan uh, Yeye, Shengdan Grandpa or something? That's a good question. I don't know. Christmas old man. That's what we got in China. We just got the old man of Christmas. I'm at the risk of turning this into a Chinese lesson. I want to point out one other linguistic thing, which is the Jingle Bell song. You hear ding, ding, dong, which is the sound of the bells. And it has a parallel in English, which is ding, dong, the sound that a doorbell makes. Automatopoeia. Right. And the thing about onomatopoeia is often they totally do not work across cultures. You're like, oh, yeah, in Chinese, a dog says wan wan and a bird says ji ji. And we're just like, what? That's weird, but okay. But in this case, ding dong is a bell sound in English and it's a bell sound in Chinese. It's just a different kind of bell. Ding dong. Another Christmas word, or at least uh, I guess a winter word that I do like is snowman. It's a pretty much a direct translation is shui ren. I'm not sure it's even a translation. Like, if a Chinese person looks at a snowman, they're just going to be like, oh, that's a snowman. Snow person. Yeah, snow person. Sorry. Works in Chinese. It's non-gender specific. Yes. <laughs> the inclusiveness of the Chinese language. We get the snow people. You could be like a horror movie out there, the rise of the snow people. Calvin and Hobbes. You have to link to that one. But... I've also had the question from people over the years, family and friends are saying, hey, you know, does China celebrate Christmas? I mean, it's not a traditionally a Christian nation. And they're kind of like, well, you know, do we have any people who celebrate it? And I would say, I think in China, they're absolutely aware of it, but they will celebrate Christmas, but it's a little bit of a different way. And they understand the holiday different than when we do in the West. Right. So the, the commercial aspect is pretty popular in China. You also have certain... American or other European brands which are helping to promote Christmas, for example, Starbucks. I was hearing the Christmas music in Shanghai the week of Thanksgiving, not after Thanksgiving, but that week before Thanksgiving. But one thing I've noticed a lot with the schools, they really like Christmas. It's fun. So a lot of schools like to have Christmas parties 
with Christmas trees, Christmas cookies. If they can get someone to come dressed up as Santa Claus, they love to do that. And in some of the popular places in the larger cities, John and I are experiences mainly in Shanghai, but there are entire malls that are just decked out all Christmas-like. So, for example, in Shanghai on Nanjing Shilu, oh, yeah. there is a couple blocks. The whole road is just done up with Christmas decorations, like something you might see in America. It's really a little bit over the top on some places, but it's really cool. But in that respect, people don't celebrate the Christmas is the same way as you might in the West. And I understand also for our listeners, we have a lot of people from America and Canada, but we also have a lot of listeners from like Europe. And I lived in Europe for a little bit. And even how we celebrate Christmas is a little different than we do in like the Americas. But in China, like people, they don't put lights up inside their home. You might have families that will put up Christmas trees. But it's more, as John had mentioned earlier, more of a commercial holiday. And people may have gifts that they might give to friends, but it's not celebrated in the same respect. A good example would be, to illustrate the point, might be this. Back when I was in Shanghai, we had some Chinese friends who, you know, Christmas was coming up and they said, hey, let's have a Christmas party and we'll have a party on Christmas Day. And I was like, it's not that kind of holiday, at least how we celebrate it in the West. It's something where you spend more with your family. And so it was kind of like, no, guys, we're not going to do that and bring out all these family and friends because we're going to be at home celebrating with our family. Yeah, I've noticed that, too. And I've also noticed how if you look at Twas the Night Before Christmas and a lot of the other Western Christmas lore, Christmas Eve is a big deal. Some people kind of think of Christmas Eve as Christmas. And because Christmas Day doesn't have all that anticipation or whatever, I know quite a few people who thought Christmas was on the 24th and that the 25th was nothing. Somehow I've explained it to some of my Chinese friends is I relate it to like the Chinese New Year. And that comes around usually the end of January or the beginning of February. It's on the lunar calendar, so it changes every year. But that time for the Chinese, the Chinese New Year is a little bit more how we would celebrate Christmas in the West. Right. But we do spend like a whole good chunk of December, like having parties, doing decorations, giving gifts, eating too much holiday food. So partly they didn't realize that, oh, we have a good week or two before Christmas to be doing all this party stuff, too. You know, that's also a good point, because I remember during the whole month of December, at least in the States, you just say Merry Christmas. But I've said that to people in China, like in the first week of December. And my Chinese friends were like, why are you saying that? It's not Christmas yet. I'm like, but it's <laughs> Christmas time, you know, it's Christmas season. And so that gives me another opportunity to explain Christmas. It's not just a day. It's a whole season. And so anytime during December, you can tell someone, uh, Happy Christmas. Yeah. There's one other interesting thing about Christmas in China, which is, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of the commercial aspects of Christmas are popular in China, Santa Claus, gift giving, that kind of thing, Christmas trees. But for some reason, it's kind of a popular thing in China on Christmas Eve to go to a church. And, you know, even though you're not a Christian, you go to a Christian church and then you listen to their Christmas Eve program, you know, the choir singing Christmas music. And I, I've talked to some friends, and that's basically the only time they ever go to a church. It has somehow become a little bit of a tradition for people to go to churches on Christmas Eve to hear the music. You know, John, I haven't been to any of the cathedrals on Christmas Eve there, but I assume it's packed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of scary. And for anyone listening, uh, I think some people might be like, what, there's a cathedral in China? Yes. How many cathedrals do we have in Shanghai? Two? There's a big one in Shoshan. It's 
technically a basilica or something like that. There's the Xujiahui Cathedral. So there, there are churches in there. The Catholicism is a recognized religion in China. So you do have some of these Christmas traditions, which are carried on and go on in China. And because uh, religions are not allowed to proselytize in China, it's kind of a rare opportunity for Christian churches because the people are coming to them. And it's like, you want to hear Christmas music? All right, we can do that. Come to our church. And I've also found that a lot of Chinese people are curious about religion. Maybe they haven't been raised religious, but they're curious about it. So it's an opportunity there for them to kind of, you know, say, hey, what, what is this all about? And to just learn a little bit more about Christmas. And you do feel a little bit of that Christmas spirit. I've had some great experiences there in Shanghai. Usually in the couple of weeks leading up to Christmas, what my always tradition was is, you know, it's cold in Shanghai and I ride an electric scooter everywhere. So I wear a Santa hat <laughs> everywhere I go. And so, and I'd say, Merry Christmas to random people or on, on the street, or you know, I'm stopped at a light when this guy's next to me, I just start talking to him. So it's just kind of fun. <laughs> really trying to spread the word that uh, Christmas time is more than one or two days. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important to be culturally sensitive and to learn about the Chinese culture, but it's a two-way street because there are a lot of Chinese people who are also very curious and are interested in your culture. So from your country, where you're from, it's one of those things that people are very open and receptive to, you know, holidays and, of course, Christmas. Everyone knows what it is. So it's always been a great opportunity to share a little bit more of that Christmas spirit and Christmas cheer with different people. Yeah, but it's interesting because it's give and take, right? I mean, if you're in China, you're not there to teach the Chinese how to do everything the Western way. The Chinese are going to do things the Chinese way. And they might have some questions, but um, it's not like we're on a mission to change how people celebrate Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. It's a wonderful time. It is celebrated all over the world. That's our Christmas show. So now you know a little bit more about Christmas, how it's celebrated in China. Merry Christmas. All right, we got a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is Mandarin Companion. And we have a new book. That's right. This is our fourth breakthrough level book. And this book is called Xiaoming Boy Sherlock. So if you're familiar at all with our level one books, you know that we have a Sherlock Holmes adaptation. It's the story of the Chinese Sherlock, our guy. His name is Gao Ming. He was once a young boy in the early 1900s in China, in Shanghai. And he had adventures then too. A little bit like Encyclopedia Brown, you might say. So he encounters a, a number of mysteries in this book. It happened at school and in the neighborhood. And using his wit and cunning skill, he solves the mystery and saves the day. Kind of saves the day. Yeah, you might be wondering, breakthrough level, that's only 150 characters. How can you tell a mystery? Yeah, trust me, I was thinking that same thing for a long time. <laughs> uh, it wasn't easy to tell a mystery at 150 characters, but we did pull it off. We did. It's done. So you can get it today. Get it on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, and get your copy today. So it's our new breakthrough level book that's written using only 150 basic characters. So go out there and get it today for Christmas. Christmas books. Yay. All right. Now we've got some rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? You got a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. And uh, we were talking about Christmas earlier. And a little bit about the religious aspect, but I'm going to go full on commercial in my rant. And unfortunately, we are not paid for this ad, but I got to say, China has this type of coffee at Starbucks only during the holiday. It's called toffee nut latte. And 
I don't know what it is about that coffee. You can't get it in the States. Like when I go to the States for Christmas, all I have is like eggnog latte, which I hate, or like ginger spice, which I hate. But toffee nut latte is awesome. So if you're in China in December, try it. Get it today at Starbucks. All right. How about you, Jared? Rant or rave? All right, John. I have got a rant. That's right. So I'm going to counterbalance your rave. So, you know, one of the big things that John and I were always talking about is extensive reading. Okay. So, you know, it's reading at your level and reading a lot of stuff that's interesting to you. I got to remember like about six years ago when we had first started out Mandarin Companion, I remember talking to a Chinese person about extensive reading. They're like, oh, we did extensive reading in college. And so she had done a degree in English. She's like, oh yeah, we had extensive reading. And I'm like, really? You did? She's like, oh yeah, everyone had to take it. And I remember talking to her a little bit about it. And it was kind of like, I'm like, this didn't sound like extensive reading. They're reading like difficult books in this class. So I came across this research paper recently, and it was an evaluation of eight extensive reading course books in China. And these were extensive reading in English for Chinese university students who are, you know, trying to go through an extensive reading course. And what they found is out of these eight books, all of them, all of them had a very difficult, like they used, I think it's a Lexile analysis. It's a Lexile score. And also... They did like how much materials are actually to read in there. And pretty much what they found was all the stuff in these books were very difficult to read. I mean, some of the stuff from Henry David Thoreau and, right. and Aldous Huxley. And it's like, hey, man, that's stuff that's difficult for native English speakers and had a lot of difficult, low frequency words. Oh, man. And some of these things were just like totally uninteresting materials. And there was just like short articles with a lot of like worksheets and like exercises to do. And I'm like, this is not extensive reading. There was like two books out of them, which were like decent. Okay. So it had like some stories that were semi good and some, it was, it was graded a little better. So it wasn't as difficult, but by and large, these were not ideal or optimal books for extensive reading in, in English. I don't know. This is one of my things is that I've run across people that are like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard extensive reading or yeah, this is really good. But I find out what they're really doing and it's not real extensive reading. And is there some benefit in it? Yes, there is. It's better than, you know, not doing any reading, but maybe not. Also, if you're reading like Aldous Huxley, you know, <laughs> it's like some really hard stuff. It may turn you off to reading altogether and that may have longer term problems. So my rant today is, is people passing off intensive reading or even stuff that's in the reading pain category as extensive reading, or they're trying to say, we're just, you know, reading short articles and this is extensive reading. No, it's not. Extensive reading is getting a lot of input at your level. So it's not just reading a chapter or two in the Nuna worksheet. It's like reading books, not chapters, books, entire books, multiple books. That's extensive reading. One of the things about extensive reading, which I've learned is the concept. It's really simple and it's very pure, but there's a lot you can do wrong. Yeah, and I think in China, there's almost like a cultural resistance to it. People just don't tend to learn language that way, even their own native language. There isn't so much of this reading for enjoyment. So, of course, when they're teaching English, they're not going to suddenly do it entirely differently, right? That's right. There's a lot of longstanding tradition and some cultural elements and stuff to overcome. But things are changing. I actually know some Chinese academics. I know one Chinese academic. She did a PhD and is all focused on extensive reading. She gets it. She's worked with all the academics and the experts in the field. And so she's out there evangelizing. It'll still take, I think, 
some years for it to more catch on in China. All right. Well, looking forward to that. So if you want to get a Christmas present for your friend in China, go get some English graded readers and bring them to him or send them to him or something and say, hey, this is from Shengdan Laoran. Well, Jared, tell them what are some good English graded readers? Oh, you know what? There, there's actually a, a lot of them. There's the Oxford Bookworms. You can actually buy those in China. But Macmillan has a lot of English graded readers. There's a series called Black Cat. We also have Scholastic. Scholastic, actually, they don't do graded readers for second language learners. They do kind of readers and stuff for L1 learners for you know native English speakers. So I wouldn't necessarily go there. Oh, yeah. My kids love the uh, Harold and Piggy Scholastic books. Those are pretty funny. I like those. <laughs> but there's a lot of resources. If you actually need some graded readers in English, I, my recommendation is go to the erfoundation.org. That's the Extensive Reading Foundation, but erfoundation.org. And they have a list, a link to every graded reader that's been published in history. And it's something like 3,500 books. Okay, so there are lots of good ones, but there are also bad ones. But if you do a little bit of research, you can easily find good ones for English. Absolutely. And then for Chinese, well, it's still uh, pretty limited, slim pickings. Um, of course, you have the best of the best of the best, sir, which is Mandarin Companion. And then you have Chinese Breeze, that uh, monkey book, which is at a higher level. Yep. We might do a future podcast on some of the not-so-extensive reading books that are calling themselves graded readers uh, in the future, because there are some of those in Chinese. There sure are. There's some good ones out there, but there's also some not-so-good ones. All right. So that concludes Jared's rant. And uh, we have an interview coming up, I assume. Oh, yes. Our interview is going to be with Santa Claus. Great pleasure, Jared. Great pleasure to hear you partner up with a guy that I've listened to for years, John, originally from Chinese Pod. This is Mervyn Cook. He's the kind of person that after talking to him for a few minutes, you feel like he's an old, familiar friend you haven't seen for a while, and you're just catching up on life. As with thousands of others, he spent a lot of time in the past learning Chinese through Chinese Pod during the John Pasden years. Okay, my name's Mervyn Cook. I'm originally from Northern Ireland, a small village in South Derry. And I spent my first 18 years living in a small village, small country town, and decided when the troubles kicked off in the north in the early 70s, some of the boys in the village wanted to go and study in, in England. So we took that big leap from a small village to a big city in the early 70s. And that was the first step on a journey, which I'll explain to you. Come join me on this journey as Mervyn shares the threads of his life that weave a tapestry of beauty and purpose. As you listen, you'll feel the joy and sorrow that come to all of us in life and see how connections and love bring healing and fulfillment. I've always asked for our listeners to stay with us through our interviews, but I invite you to listen to this one just for you. Well, Mervyn, I want to hear now your story. What happened in your life? You started on some small town there in Ireland, and when the Troubles came, and for our listeners who may not be familiar, the Troubles was the, the conflict that was happening between uh, Ireland and North Ireland. Yes, that's right. In early 69, the Catholic population in the North decided that they were getting a bad deal. They had poor housing, poor job opportunities, and the Protestants 
who were the sort of landowners historically, had control of the land, the better jobs, they went to better schools. So there was a civil rights movement in the late 60s. And unfortunately, the police came in pretty heavy. And then the, the police couldn't handle the riots and disturbance in about 1970, 71, 72. The British government decided to call in the army to separate the two sides, the Protestants on the one side and the Catholics on the other side. So that was a time when you decided, hey, I think it's maybe time to try something different or be go somewhere else. Well, Jared, those were dark days. I mean, we... TV in those days was black and white, and January 72 was the famous, the infamous, rather, Bloody Sunday, where 13 innocent people were shot dead by British soldiers. And that cast a dark shadow over the whole of the North. It's a small, small country. And we were deciding to go to university, and for some reason I had this desire from a a child to go to South America, to go to Brazil based on reading a book as a child in a very small primary school in in her village in South Derry. And I had this itch to travel. The troubles kind of gave me that opportunity to say, okay, let's make that first move. Let's take that first step. And I did. And I, I came to England, to Reading, which is outside London, and studied at university for three years. I studied physics and maths. So you say physics and maths. I mean, I assume you had an interest in that before. You did move to South America. What what kind of happened there? Well, it was one, one of these things in life, Jared, that I, I screwed up in my university application. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to become, because I, I've written a book about life on the land and farmers and stuff. I worked in a farm as a child, and I wanted to do a degree that was related to agriculture. But I had to study biology and botany and zoology and this. And when I got to the first semester, I thought, hey, what am I doing all this stuff for? I got A-levels in maths and physics and chemistry. So I went out the back door of the agricultural department and in the back door of the maths and physics department, I said, hey, guys, can you give me a home? So I completely screwed up on my <laughs> university admission. Well, well, how did it? So, what happened though? You I mean you studied for three years and then you got your degree and then I studied for three years and I, I took a postgraduate degree in in education because I kind of like working with kids and I thought, well, you know, in those days in the dark seventies where there were strikes and in London rubbish wasn't being collected, you did two jobs when you left university. You either joined the bank or you became a teacher. So I thought, let's try this teaching game. So I took a teacher postgraduate certificate in education. Okay. And had my first job in 1978 near the airport, near London Airport, a place called Southall. I loved engaging with the kids. It was a secondary school. You call it a high school over there. So And I I taught them maths, and I loved doing that. Moved to another school, and then I got itchy feet. This desire to travel, to go to South America – was always in the background saying, Mervyn, you got to make a move. you got to make a move. <laughs> so did you go? I looked at the Times Education Supplement, which was the, the main teacher's newspaper, and they were advertising for a job in Brazil, and I applied for that. That kind of fell through. So I had to take out an atlas. In those days, we didn't have Google Maps. We had no computers, nothing. I had to get an at- one of these big atlases out. And where the heck's Brazil? Oh, it's the East Coast, South America. Okay. <laughs> And then a job came advertised in in Peru. And I thought, where the heck's Peru? Get the Atlas out again. It's in South America. It's on the West Coast. 
And I looked at it and I fingered all the exotic places like Machu Picchu, like Satua Man, like Cusco, the Inca Empire. And I thought, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Mm. So I got my first foreign posting for th- three years in a private girls' school in, in, in Lima, Peru. Lima is the capital. It was the start of the realization of a childhood dream, which was initiated by reading a book about Brazil as a child. So I was kind of following this inner feeling about, got to go to South America, and I made it happen. I made it happen. I worked in Peru for five years, met my wife, said well clear, Jared, of the expatriate community, (laughs) mixed with the locals, learned to drink like the locals, learned to talk like the locals. And I thought, hey, this language stuff is easy, Spanish. And I subsequently married my wife, Elizabeth. Um, She was my girlfriend at the time. We've been married for 30 years. We've got three lovely boys. They're half Irish, half Peruvian. So they've got a beautiful pedigree. That's amazing. And I think it's amazing how sometimes those things, when you're young, they just stick with you, right? It sounds like there was that that book, it made such a big impression on you that it stuck with you for a large part of your life. A book inspired me. So I've been to schools and I give talks and, and I read from books and I do live recordings and I tell people that literature, books can change your life. I have a copy Jared, off. I found an old copy in a secondhand bookshop years ago, and I still have that book to this day. The original book? A copy of the original book. That's amazing. And it's testimony to the power of the written word, to the power of writing your thoughts down and putting them in paper. You can inspire other people. I was inspired. And I subsequently published and wrote and published a book of my own, which has inspired other people to do similar things. That is inspiring. Jared, there's a thread through the whole of the journey from leaving the shores of Belfast to coming to England to going to Lima and from Lima, Peru, after five years, taking the next step. Well, Mervyn, then tell me about what happened here. We want to hear about your experience learning Chinese, but, you know, you have such an interesting story already of, of, you know, leaving Ireland during a troubling time, your university, you end up in Peru, you meet a local there, you marry her, you're starting a family. What happened along this journey where Chinese became part of your life? Well, after five years, Jared, in Peru, Peru was going through a very difficult time. They had what we call toque de queda, which means they had curfew. The army was in the streets. The government was being run by the generals. There were terrorists running around. It wasn't a nice place, but my wife and we got married in Peru, but we decided to come back to London, to the UK. I came back to the same place in London where I'd been teaching and my wife came with me and we made a fresh start. I didn't go back into teaching, but I was looking for other avenues of work and I, I started working as a sales guy on the phone and started to have a family. The big thing, Jared, was, you know, there's two people in your life, yourself and your your partner, and then suddenly you got kids. Yep, yep. You're number four and five on the pecking order. You know, the kids come first. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So the kids went through primary school. They were starting to go to high school, as you call it, over in the States. We call it the secondary school. And they were, by the age of nine and ten, they were fluent in Spanish. So we became a bilingual house. We spoke all the time in 
Peruvian Spanish and the kids were learning from their mother from a very early age. So I suddenly found myself in a bilingual family. But I was reading papers and at the start of 2000, I started to take interest in, in languages and other languages. And I picked up Chinese Mandarin. Chinese is going to, be, going to be one of the big languages in the future. So I said to my boys, listen, you guys are great, great at Spanish, but the language you need to learn in the future is Mandarin, Chinese Mandarin. And that was around about 2006. And on the 1st of January, 2006, I know the date, Jared, because I kept a series of diaries when I became a father, which had my sort of uh, goals and aims and things I wanted to do in my life. Mm -hmm. And I have an entry on the 1st of June, 1994. That was the first diary. And on the 30th of June, 1994, there's an entry in the diary. It says, learn Chinese in brackets three and a date beside it, 30th of June, 1997. And I've got that written down in, in the book. I've kept all my diaries. And that never happened in 1994. It never happened in 1997. Hmm. But at the 1st of January, 2006, a CD was fell out of the Times newspaper mm. when it was delivered through the door, a CD, and the CD was Teach Yourself Mandarin. The date's important, Jared, 1st of January, 2006. Mm. And I said to the boys, okay, guys, I'm going to set an example. I'm going to start learning Mandarin. I mean, you had something came in the newspaper, but I mean, how did you get into this? Well, the thing is, you know, at the beginning of every year, New resolutions, you know the sort of stuff, Jared. Exactly. You know, get get fed, go to the gym, get a bicycle exercise, start running and stuff like that. And language is one of those things that push at the beginning of a new year. You learn a new language. I thought, I'm going to go for this. And the editor of the Times on the CD, I listened to it, and the guy said, um, and in the words of German Mao, famous quote, hao hao shi tian tian shang shang. <laughs> Keep studying and you make progress, yeah? Yeah. And I remember that. And, and that was my first attempt at doing. And I've spent 1st of January, 2006. It's now been 13 years, 11 months, and five days. Exactly. Wow. Today's the fifth day of the 11th month of the 13th year. And each day I would do a little bit of studying and... I used a lot of different resources. Chinese Pod was an initial one that, you know, I've listened to so many conversations. And I just kept going, I kept going, I kept going, I kept learning, I kept finding people to talk to. And I just stuck at it. Um, it's easy to give up. Mm -hmm. It's hard to keep going. And that five-year period, Jared, was a difficult period for me because the 1st of January, I started learning Mandarin. In March, April that year, my mum passed away. Mm -hmm. The following year, my father passed away. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, 2008, I went to Beijing. And in 2011, I wrote my first book of Irish poetry, poetry about life in Ireland in the 50s. So you had a lot going on in your life at that time. Well, listen, I was, I was cracking up. Uh, I'm telling you, Jared, you know, my relationship is having losing your both your parents is the biggest roadblock in, in, in your emotional drive in life. 
losing both of them in such a short space of time. I, was, I suffered from relationship problems. I suffered from drinking. And somehow this sea of calm and being able to write down and study and, and study my Mandarin, it kind of gave me like a, a life belt. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It kind of saved me from going through a difficult time. Yeah. And in, the, in that five years, I really cracked into learning it and doing exercises every day and studying and reading a bit. And and that's really when, I, when, the, when it took off. So I want to hear a little more about that because I mean, it sounds like you tried a lot of things. And it's also interesting to hear from you that, you know, Chinese became a bit of a, you say, a life buoy. You know, let me a life vest, you know, that it lifted you up and kind of carried you through some of these difficult times. Mm. And so, but I, I want to know kind of first a little bit, like you, know, you say, you use Chinese pod, you found people to talk to. Maybe you can share any of those experiences or just kind of, you know, things that you found effective or helped you as you were learning Chinese. Well, I was working in London at the time, um, Jared, and I had to find a, a Chinese speaker. You just can't learn from a book. You can't learn from an app. You can't learn from an online tutorial. You've got to get out there and you've got to speak to people. So I was working in London and, and I used to see this Chinese guy walking into the shop every morning and coming out of the shop. He'd buy his newspaper and he'd go. And so one day I picked up the courage to, I said, I'm going to say hello to him. I'm going to say that those infamous words, niha, niha, niha. <laughs> I could see him in the queue, and but he checked out too quickly and I couldn't make a chance to talk to him. But he stopped and he turned around, he came back in again and he grabbed a couple of plastic bags and he said to the checkout receptionist, he said, uh, Scoos, what time, what time is it? And the receptionist didn't know what he was saying. She said, sorry, what were you saying? What are you saying? He said, time, what time? And I looked at my watch. I was next in the queue. And it was two minutes past nine, Jared. Not nine o'clock, not five past nine, but two minutes past nine. And I was thinking, how do you say it's two minutes past nine? You've got to say, so you've got to assemble all those things together. Mm-hmm. Those five bits of information. Uh-huh. I thought, I'm just going to tell him it's nine o'clock. So he turned about around, about to go out the shop, but pointed my watch, but I shout, <laughs> and he stopped. He turned around and he came up to me. He said, you're Chinese, very bad. You've been to China. <laughs> and that's what he said. <laughs> and I, I became friends with him, Jared. His name was Mr. Pang, and he was from Shanghai and spoke with a Shanghai Hua accent. Mm-hmm. I call him Mr. Nine O'Clock. <laughs> he was my first Chinese teacher. We sat in cafes, we had coffees, we talked, and, and I said something, and he said, no, that you say, listen. And I went out to look for people purposely to talk to, and he was my first Chinese teacher, Mr. Pang. And I met his wife about three, four months later, and I said, "Ah, oh, Mr. Pang, what's Mr. Pang? Mr. Pang Dina?" And she looks at me, and she points to the sky. Mm-hmm. And I understood from that that he had passed away. Oh, that's sad to hear. That's how I got into being bold enough, being brave enough, being foolish enough to actually try it out. You can't learn from an app. You can't learn from a book. You've got to engage and you've got to make mistakes. And And I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, not just in Chinese or, or Mandarin. And then you learn by your mistakes. 
And subsequently, those little moments of joy when you say something and someone said, ah, your Chinese is very good. And I would immediately go into a very subservient role and say, no, no, you're overpraising me. Mm-hmm. And then people would say, but your Chinese is very good. That kept me going, you know. I find something that's a very rewarding, especially when you experience this in your story, is that when you're able to use your language to connect with other people, you were able to connect in a way that you wouldn't have been able to if you hadn't been able to speak any Chinese at all. Mm. The, the issue, Darren, is not to do with big breakthroughs. In it. It's simple, small phrases and small, as I say in French, bon mot, that you can use with people. And one particular example was my wife and I were in Venice celebrating her wedding anniversary about five or six years ago. And in Venice, they have to bring everything in by boat, by canal, by barge, etc. Everything's going to be brought in. And these guys hump the goods and the food and stuff over the little narrow bridges on the Venice canals. And they say, they shout, attention, 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 which kind of means watch out, watch out. So we were near St. Mark's Square, I believe, the big square in, in Venice one day. And I could hear this guy coming along. I said to my wife, I said, cuidado, cuidado in Spanish. You're careful, careful. And then I saw in the distance a group of Chinese tourists. And they were coming along. This guy was bombing over the little bridge with this thing full up with merchandise and stuff like that. So I shout, Xin, Xin. Xin which I'd learned when I was 2008, walking the Great Wall, I kept saying, be careful on the steps, shashin, shashin, shashin. So I shouted, shashin, shashin. <laughs> and, the, and the group of, the party of Chinese tourists stopped. And then somebody said, shashin. And then somebody else said, shashin. And then they all started saying, careful, careful in Mandarin. And I went up to the guy and I said, um, where about you from in China? And he said, Sichuan. And I said, man, Sichuan, I hear the food is really spicy. I don't like it. <laughs> I said to him, I said, Sichuan Sichuan And he stopped. He looks as if he's seen a ghost. And I said, listen, guys, I'd better go. I'd better go because my wife's waiting for me. And just those little things, it's its not the big things in life that affect people. It's the small intimacies that we can exchange on a day-to-day basis, not just in language. But And I always remember if you learn a little thing and you sow that seed, it gives you the courage, therefore, to go forward and, and, and you feel good for it, that somebody's understood and somebody's benefited from that moment. They didn't bang into the guy who was coming over the bridge with a whole pile of merchandise. They were careful. Well, I also want to hear a little bit from you. Like uh, You first learned Spanish. Did knowing Spanish or having gone through that experience of learning a second language, did that help you at all when you were learning Chinese? I must say, Jared, I've never had any formal training, classroom-based training in either Spanish or Mandarin. It's been informal. It's been finding someone to, to go through specific content. I was able to pick up Spanish because I worked in a, a bilingual school. I kept away from the expatriates in the evenings and mixed with the local people. So I was using it on the street 
I wasn't using it from a textbook. I wasn't using it from an official grammatical standpoint. I was learning how to communicate with people on the street. My experience closely mirrors that as well. I never went through classes or university or school or anything. I learned on the streets of Shanghai. Certainly, to answer your question, Jared, having a second language, a third language, is a lot easier. I can imagine guys who've been married three or four times. The fifth time they're married, it's probably easier than the fourth time. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not advocating that people should be polygamous. But I'm saying if you've got two languages, you've been through that thing of getting your head around, what's the grammar about? What's the structure about? What's the alphabet like? Does it have an alphabet? This one doesn't have an alphabet. It's got characters. And I thought, hey, that's a nice little challenge. I, I'm, I'm up for that. So it did give me the confidence, Jared, to tackle Mandarin and to make a success of it. So like uh, in learning Chinese, what are some of the things that you enjoyed the most? And this is something that kind of takes me back a little bit to what you had said earlier, that when you had gone through that really difficult time in your life, Chinese felt like a little bit of a, a life buoy, a, an anchor for you. And mm. so what do you think what is about the language that really kind of helped you through some of that difficult time? I, re- I realized, Jared, that Mandarin had had something that the other Romance languages didn't have. It had this cultural baggage. I don't mean baggage in in a negative sort of heavy weight type of thing. But China comes with 5,000 years of history. There's ancient scrolls with the the characters written from those 5,000 years back. There's the emperors. There's there's all that stuff. And there's something mysterious and deep about it. I I studied martial arts for 20 years. I'm a second-time black belt. And I got into the Japanese culture and the Far East and that, I was kind of interested in that. So for me, the joy in learning Chinese was I could, I, I've got a book, which is How to Read a Chinese Poem, an anthology of Tang Dynasty. And here's me reading about Tang Dynasty and about the poets, you know, like Li Bai and there was a couple of them. I, I'm bad with all the poets' names too, so don't worry about that. <laughs> You know, and I, and I thought to be able to read a Chinese poem, first of all, in pinyin, they do a pinyin translation, then they do the traditional character set, and then they do the, the simplified Chinese characters. I was able to read that and think, well, this guy's talking about one night in midwinter or something, and he's drunk some rice wine, and he's fallen down underneath the chrysanthemum bush, and he's smelling the fragrance of the chrysanthemum bush but he's had too much to drink and i'm thinking hey this guy's no different from anyone else he's had too much to drink and he falls into the into the ditch (laughs) but you know what i mean and that was a joy for me to actually be able to to read chinese poems to read about for example the the last empress of china the empress dowager shishi i think she was called i read that book as well and i was able to dive into the language through history, through poetry. And I'm a poet myself. I, I wrote my first book of poetry just after my, my father passed away. And that was another cathartic, I think the word's cathartic, where it helped relieve the emotional angst and, and the pain that you suffer through. Mm-hmm. So a combination of learning Mandarin, of becoming a poet and, and writing down. And, and, and I was able, therefore, after I wrote the poems, to publish them in on one of the Weibo sites, which is like a Chinese equivalent of, of Facebook or Sinus CN or something. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of merged between Twitter and Facebook, Weibo. Yeah, I managed to, to work out how to get into the website, but you had to put in a, 
a username password and I, I managed that and I just posted a few poems and then people wrote back to me and said, uh, oh, Mr. Marvin, your poetry takes me back to ancient time in China. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? I just blogged a poem in English and this guy was really affected by it. And I thought, well, you know what, Jared, emotions, loss and love, we're all the same, no matter whether you're from from Sichuan or from Sligo, whether you're from Beijing or Belfast, we all suffer the same highs and lows in life. And I was able through my Chinese to use poetry as a vehicle to communicate with people. So it wasn't a textbook approach to learning Chinese. I indulged my passion. My passion is poetry. My passion is reading poetry, reading poetry with music to an audience. And I was able to combine that with the Mandarin language. And that kept the flame of learning and kept it alive. That's such a, I think, a meaningful story. And, you know, I've experienced that too with Chinese poetry. It, it's, it can be difficult. And for any listeners out there, I don't really usually advocate going out there reading poetry to learn Chinese. It's a, more of a, something to appreciate Chinese um, when you have a, at least a, a comparable level. But some of the depth in that Chinese poetry can just be, it's very deep. It's got so much meaning and weight. It's going to be very beautiful. We have an art center at our, our local churches, and they have an open mic session where everybody turns up and they play guitars and they sing songs, and they have one poet. I'm the resident poet, and I get up and I can't sing, Jared. I can't play an instrument, but man, can I tell a poem. Mm. And they love it. People love it. And you know what I think it is, Jared? Even though we're totally 24-7 connected with Facebook and Twitter and apps for this and apps for that, there's a disconnect. And I think we're going back to listening to stories, listening to long podcasts. I believe that's really trendy now. And listening to stories from people and, and compare them to our own stories back to a sort of a non-technical, a non-IT, a non-app based way of doing things sit down i'll tell you a story and the irish are great for that i must say <laughs> jared without blowing my own trumpet the irish are great storytellers oh i agree with you and the, if you know any irish people they're great talkers as well i do i i lived in england for a couple of years uh, when i was younger in the midlands of england there but i did get to know a number of irish people yeah and we have that propensity to spin a yarn to tell a story you think, wow, that guy's lived life or he's done some things, but there you go. <laughs> so I think it helps. And we're, we're kind of garrulous, which I think means sort of, we'll go and talk to anyone. And if you're learning a new language, you want to find people who you can talk to. So we're, we're not scared of going up to people and saying, Ching Wen, Ching Wen. You should, you should, who should be Ireland? And it just starts and starts. And, and that's the way I learned. And that's the way I continue to learn. A good example is, you know, John Paston's Chinese podcast, yeah? Mm -hmm. They have newbie lesson, intermediate lesson stuff. I, I would drive to work every day. It's an hour there, an hour back. I'd listen to them. And maybe once about ordering coffee. So when I go to order my coffee at work in the morning, I'd order it, of course, to the lady. It's to give me a black coffee, a big cup, no sugar. But underneath almost like in a soft voice, I'd say it in Chinese. And I'd imagine myself saying, and I'd say that underneath my breath, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that was like a kind of thing to keep it going, to keep the momentum going. 
particularly after 13 years, 11 months and five days, you got to have something to keep the momentum going. That's a clever way to do it. I like that. Well, Mervyn, this has been a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you sharing all these very you know, intimate moments and, and experiences in your life and how it relates to Chinese. Something I would like to ask you, you are a poet, you know, you're even a resident poet. Do you have a favorite poem in Chinese? I do, Jared. If anyone is Chinese speaking or knows about poetry in China, there's one name that stands out. I do know that a lot of Chinese people I've spoken to can recite the, some of these poems by heart. So I'd like to read one from a poet that was born in the Tang Dynasty, Li Bai, his name was. So we're talking about 699 BC and 762. He died in 762. And he wrote a poem which in English is translated into A Thought on a Still Night. And it's a very short meter. It's a very short style. And the Tang and the Ming Dynasty poets wrote very short, very focused poems. Let's hear it. Jing Yi Si, Chuang Cheng Ming Yue Guang, Yi Shi Di Shang Shuang, Zhu Tou Wang Ming Yue, Di Tou Si Gu Shang. A thought on a still night. Before my bed, the bright moonlight looks like frost upon the ground. I raise my head to watch the moon, then lower my head and think of home. That's beautiful. Mervyn, thanks for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. Jared, great pleasure. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, mechanic, carpenter, photographer, pharmacist, nurse, and that one guy named Jonathan. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank Mervyn Cook and to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pasden. See you next time.